Perfect. Just like old times. All right, let's do this. Living in a scientific age. Can you hear this? We need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We use science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness. But it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively? It'll be up to you. And you too. Hey, Todd, you're kind of a biblical scholar. I am. Yes. yes. Uh, do you know where on the ship did Noah keep all the bees? Uh, I don't, in, Mark. Of course, in the archives. In the archives. In the archives. <laughs> Yay. I'm going to give you a clap for that. That was delightful. <laughs> that is what I might use in my in my Sunday school that's class. A, that's a solid <laughs> Sunday school joke. Ah, <laughs> uh, that was great. Well, there is some more laughter in our hearts and in the room right now because we are joined by Brian, the Unipiper Kid. How are you, Brian? Hey, guys. I'm doing really well. I know. I realized it's... It feels really good to be back. I know. I was thinking about the other day. I'm like, we haven't had Brian on the show forever. And so I thought it would be fun to have you on uh, the show later. We're going to do our War of Wikipedia, which we haven't done in a while, too. But it's just always a good excuse to have us all get together. So I'm very, I'm very excited. My one of two podcasts I will be doing today, <laughs> I will be appearing as Dr. R.I.P. on the podcast, You Shouldn't Be Here, which is a podcast <laughs> out of Eugene, Oregon, that uh, emailed Dr. R.I.P. out of the blue and was like, you know, we have this podcast or whatever. Do you want to come on? And I was like, sure. And I was like, oh, did you did you find me because of that barely social video or barely social video? He's like, no. What? What's that? So I'll be interested cool. to see how they he stumbled on on that channel. But I listened to the show and it's it's pretty fun. It's three guys and and I've listened to more I, more than three episodes, which is saying a lot wow. for podcasts. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, what's that'll it, be fun. What's it about? They just shoot the shit. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I don't, they don't have any loose topics or anything as far as I could tell. Um, but yeah, it's just them kind of sitting around and, and I don't and know talking. if I've, I don't know if I've ever listened to three episodes of our show. That's <laughs> saying a lot. Uh, I do. The only ones I, I go back to are these War of Wikipedia ones, that yeah, yeah. and the one that Brian did about uh, musical origins that that you may not know of so those are those are my favorite it was funny i was i usually don't uh, proofread the the podcast i guess for lack of a better word when i edit them together and 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 send them out for the most part i i don't really edit it in case you haven't been able to tell listeners i really don't edit anything out of this podcast but for some reason i was listening to um before i put it out last week's episode and as i was listening to myself on a podcast that i was listening to i was also opening a box of shirts that had my own face on them because I ordered some Dr. R.I.P. merch. And I'm like, this is weird. Several layers of narcissism. I'll have to explain <laughs> to a therapist someday. So, but um, can, yeah. can, I sh can I share with you guys what I've been obsessed with the past uh, 72 ish hours? Please. Are either of you following the Gabby Petito case? Not at so, all. 
loosely in that I kind of know the overview because it's one of those things and it's 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 sort of related, even though not related to that Invermectin horse dewormer <laughs> thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, explain that. And I say that because um, I would say on on social media, I'd say half of my half the people I know are either people from church or relatives or you know people that I have known from the religious area of my life, and half of them are just like whoever or whatever. And it's fascinating to me. I was talking with my parents about this how one day no one had ever heard of a horse deworming pill. And then the next day it was everywhere in that community. And I'm like, where, I, I can't What's figure out where the first story? mention yeah. or where the origin story of that was. And I guess I say that in the same way is that that Gabby story in those circles is a huge thing that people are following and I'm trying to figure out. And it, it's, I mean, Part of it is that it's another blonde white girl story, not to diminish what's happening with it, but that is usually well, missing persons cases go that way. It's just a fascinating case. And what is so fascinating oh, yeah, to me- Yeah, if you can fill in some details, cause I'm not sure I'm getting it yeah, all-, all Sure, sure. So Gabby Petito uh, was uh, a YouTuber. And I, I say YouTube in quotes because she had like less than a thousand followers. So she was like just getting started. She didn't really have a following, but her and her boyfriend um, planned a six month road trip and they were going to, uh, you know, hashtag van life. And they were going to drive from New York all the way out to see all the national parks in the West and, you know, take six months to do it and, and blog and Instagram it the whole way. Day eight in the search for Gabby Petito oh, sorry, and still sorry. no. <laughs> Well, don't take my word for it. That was terrifying. <laughs> um, so anyways, um, they end up in Grand Teton National Park. And uh, on the way, so on the way to the Grand Tetons in Utah, they got pulled over by the police. Um, and there, there was like a domestic disturbance. And he had cuts and bruises on his face like she had been hitting him. And there's an hour more than an hour's worth of body cam footage you can watch from the police of them like talking to them and uh they ended up separating them for the night they're like okay you take the van you go stay in a hotel you guys need some space apart um they made up and continued on their journey um and uh they go to grand teton and then she texts her family and that's the last time anyone heard from her well fast forward uh you know three or four days and brian her fiance um, he shows up at his parents' house in Florida with the van and the girl is not with him. Gabby's not with him. And um, it, a couple days later, it comes out to her parents that Brian had returned without her. And then her parents file a missing persons report. And Brian and, and his family are being 100% silent. They will not speak to anyone about the case. And uh, it is like the true crime, you know, you could not write a better true crime story. And this one, it's, it's the type of story that, you know, a Netflix show or a podcast in the nation would just get engrossed in. But this one's playing out in real time in real and you time. can follow it in like every single day, almost every hour, there's a, a, another twist. And the latest twist is that Brian now has gone missing from his Florida house. What? Um, no charges have been pressed. He is only a person of interest because they have no evidence of a crime yet because she is just missing. And um, the police went to his house to speak to him. And then his parents filed a missing persons report that he was missing. And then they acknowledged that he had been missing for a week. 
Um, and there's just all, no one's story is adding up and it is just fascinating to watch this played in real time. So now there are concurrently two active searches, one in Grand Tetons for Gabby and one in uh, a Florida uh, nature park where um, his parents said that he said he was going to hike. And so they're looking for both of them and we don't know what's going to happen. Wow. That is pretty compelling. Well, we do know that, uh, about 15 minutes ago, Jeez. The Teton County coroner confirms they have dispatched resources to a body found in the <gasps> National Forest. Holy shit. Wow. Well, this is going to be super old news for everyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> but no, that is that is more compelling than than I guess just the kind of the usual story that gets glommed onto. But wow, what a we have just like what you said, a true crime like <laughs> true in, crime in, unfolding in real time. On this wow. podcast. <laughs> During this podcast. We may get get all get it all solved here. <laughs> all right. Well, I do have some news. I believe I sent you guys. Um yes. sent you guys that. Brian, do you want to start us off there? I'm gonna have you Sure, let's dive into some news. Yes. Uh, now, you know okay. what, now you know what it's like for Mark to have to like <laughs> just cold, cold read stories you've never seen before as they're just placed in front of you. There is no link or citation, so I'm just reading words. Yes. Uh, rabid bat found in Northeast Portland, the first in seven years. Um, the bat was discovered in a yard in Grant Park neighborhood after a dog was found playing with it. Oh, that's not good. Mm. Uh, another rabid bat was found in Beaverton on Friday. So uh, that's two bats in seven years. Okay. No humans are thought to have been exposed to the disease in either case. Uh, rabies attacks the nervous system of infected mammals and symptoms include lethargy, aggressiveness, irritability, convulsions, and loss of coordination. Uh, disease is rare in Oregon with just 10 other animals testing positive for the illness so far this year. Well, wait a minute. Rabbit. Oh, I guess that's the first rabid bat. Yeah. So it's not often that we get a rabbit and bat. Okay. So yeah. bats usually hunt at night, yada, yada, yada. Um, okay. So this is funny. You know what terrifies me? Rabies. Rabies terrifies me. Did you guys do an episode on rabies one time? I don't think, I don't so. think so. That would be an interesting yeah. episode. Um, rabies, it has uh, just about a hundred percent fatality rate. Um, wow. There, of course, if you know that you were exposed, you can get the treatment and you'll be okay. But um, there are so many cases of people falling asleep and a bat biting them and they have no idea that the bat had bit them because it just, you know, bats are so small and their teeth are so small. And then by the time they show symptoms, by the time you show symptoms, if you have not sought treatment, you are going to die over the course of like another couple of weeks. Uh. And I just recently found out that one of the symptoms, um, the, the, I saw this video posted and it was a man holding a glass of water and his hands were shaking and he was trying to bring it up to his mouth, but he just couldn't bring it up to his mouth. One of the symptoms of rabies is that you become terrified of water and you can't drink it um like whoa yeah and uh, so that, that that video just became like instantly more <sighs> creepy that's um, crazy rabies terrifies me do, i does, was just does sarah know that you watch rabies videos <laughs> i know <laughs> <laughs> we do uh, you know we are mandatory reporters to Sarah? She has. <laughs> she well, has it's scary because there in. are there are bats living. I believe they're probably living in my attic um, because when I go out there in the evenings and I'll go out and have a smoke or something like that, I'll step out kind of on the edge of the porch and it's dark enough. It's not totally dark, but dark enough that you can kind of see a shadow that just goes like 
a hundred miles per hour past my face and like through my porch and like checking me out. Cause I think it thinks the end of my cigarette, which is warm. I think he thinks it's a bug because I don't know if they sense heat or whatever, but it'll, it'll come out and check me out and do flybys. And I'm that's I, freaky. Yeah. And one got in my house once and, and uh. my house is not very big at all. You just, you can see it all behind me. And so that was scary too. But like, I'd love that the bat is here because they're great for mosquitoes and bugs and all that control. But like one of these days I'm like, it's going to take a little nip at me. And then I have to figure out do I get, cause the only other thing I know about rabies is that the shot you have to get is like a baseball bat size needle that they have to shove into your stomach. And it's like yeah, super painful. And expensive. I always heard 24 shots in the stomach. It's like oh. the urban legend. <laughs> of a, like a six inch. I choked on my own spit. It's always like a six. The needle for that is like six inches long. I don't know if that one's for rabies or tetanus, but well, but that seems crazy because that would just go all the way through. through. <laughs> so like that never made sense. <laughs> just terrifying. Uh, anyway, yeah. So watch out, watch out for bats. Yes. Uh, so it turns out that Russia is to open the new frontier in space, shooting a first full-length movie. So I, I remember a couple of weeks ago, and we'll get to this in just a second, a couple of weeks ago there was an announced by NASA that they are planning a movie with Tom Cruise filmed at the International Space Station, but Russia is beating us to the punch. So they <laughs> took a step closer on Thursday to claiming another record in space when a commission of medical and safety experts approved a plan for an actress and a director to blast off early next month to film the first full-length fictional movie in space. The movie called The Challenge tells of a female doctor launched on short notice to the International Space Station to save the life of a cosmonaut. If filmed on schedule next month, it would beat Hollywood's uh, uh, would beat Hollywood to the low Earth orbit. So... Um, NASA announced last year plans for Tom Cruise, you know, you know last year, or a couple of weeks ago, whatever, uh, Tom Cruise uh, <laughs> to film at the station. And um, uh, they plan to, the the actor and the director plan to fly up and back in a Soyuz capsule and spend 10 days filming the Russian segment of the space station. Blast off is planned for October 5th. So interesting. Yeah, of course, of course, Tom Cruise is going to go film a movie in space. I mean, who else would, there's like no other choice of who we would send up to make a space movie. It's going to be Mission Impossible 8. Totally. Yep. Totally. Um, Uh, Is this where really where we're at? You know, like the biggest space news is that Tom Cruise is now filming a a movie in space. Like that's, that's all (laughs) we can fly to space and that's what we're choosing to do with it. (laughs) We're inspiring future generations. Uh, that's it's, right it's it's all about the inspiration and stuff. <laughs> tom cruise inspires us all uh well there is some tragic news the dutch are the world's tallest people but they are shrinking <laughs> so for the last six decades the people of the lowlands have stood uh, at the top of the world's height table with the latest uh, data suggesting the average 19 year old man stuck at, stood at just over six feet tall in 2020 and women measured at five foot six so the finding by the Central Bureau of de Statistique, a government institution, means that um, they've had the spot since 1958, except for a blip in 1967, when men born that year came in at a miserable second place. Um, 
So Dutchmen born in 2001 are on an average one centimeter shorter than the generation born in the 1980s. And Dutch women are 1.4 centimeters smaller. Um, growth stagnated both in generations. First, they um, the degrees is partly related to an increased immigration of shorter new population groups. So of course, always blame the outsiders. Um, but also the growth stagnated in, stagnated in generations in which both parents were born in the Netherlands. So it's happening um, regardless of, of who the parentage is. Um, perhaps things like this, like the financial crisis have meant that some children grow up in poorer conditions than earlier cohorts as far as what their nutrition and stuff like that. They blame fast food and similar trends in the United States of uh, decreasing heights because of unhealthy food intake. Um, the data is nevertheless a sober reminder for the Dutch that nothing stays the same forever. Uh, it was only in the first half of the 1900s that the Netherlands enjoyed a stunning growth spurt, hitting uh, the heights in the 1950s. So back in 1930, the average height for a man was 5'7", and it's, uh, it topped at 6 feet in 1980. So. Hmm. They don't really know. They don't really know why we were the tallest in the first place, and they always just wondered if it was a dietary thing. And so they're kind of going, uh, uh, going with that. But anyway, our our men from Friesland, who which is the north part of Holland, uh, have consistently enjoyed a three centimeter uh, to three point five centimeter advantage over their compatriots in Limburg in the south, uh, which is the same in women. So our reign is coming to an end, sadly. <laughs> All right. So Dutch Bros Coffee IPO brews Oregon's newest billionaire. Uh, <clears throat> oh, the firm. I said the film, which I thought we were continuing the last uh, article. So the firm started, <laughs> they are, Dutch Brothers is filming. It's filming in they're, space. They're right filming now. in space. Uh, the firm uh, was started by two brothers who quit the dairy industry to sell coffee from a push cart in the small city of Grants Pass in 1992. And now they have 470 shops known for their drive through only format spread across 11 states. They also are always employed by the happiest people. And, and I think they just pump them full of caffeine. And they're just <laughs> my, nie my niece is one of them. She's worked for them for like five or six years now. Yeah. And she is the typical what you think of when you think of Dutch brothers. Oh, yeah. We can, uh, and because she's Dutch, she's, yeah, she's Dutch. that too. <laughs> and well, and so are, so are the owners, uh, Borsma, and I forget the other one's name, or I guess they were brothers, but yeah, Borsma is a very, is a very Dutch name. Very Dutch name. So the company has 17,000 employees and, uh, the Blockbuster IPO makes it the largest in Oregon's history. Dutch bros raised about $484 million, far more than the $146 million and $169 million raised by Oregon heavyweights Nike and Columbia Sportswear in 80 and 96, respectively. And so um, I bought my $200 worth of shares the uh, day after. And so I bought $200 worth, and I have so far made a total of 55 cents. So I am up <laughs> 55 cents. Yeah. Nice. So I, I told, I knew this was coming. And I, so I told my niece, you know, as soon as they, cause I knew that they were going to let um, employees buy first and then announce it to the oh. public. And so she told me on the day that it opened and like, I don't have a brokerage account anymore. 
And so I had to go, I had to go up and set one up and my bank, it's all still pending until like Tuesday. Yeah. And so I'm just watching that, watching that price go up. It, it got, uh, it went up 60% in the first day. So yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the exact same boat. I can't trade until Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so dumb. I thought it was going to be like a PayPal thing. Cause PayPal, you don't have to have any money in the thing. It just draws money. Like when you want to buy, it just goes to your bank account or whatever, yep. but this does not let you do that. So I was like, dang, nab it. Yep. So anyway, but exciting things to happen for that. Well, cows have successfully potty been potty trained as a solution to urine pollution. Researchers took a sweet treat to coax, coax the cows to push through a gate and urinate in a special pen, and it only took 15 days to train the young calves. The cows are at least as good as children aged two to four and at least as quick, said the study author Lindsay Matthews. Uh, what started with a half-in-jest half in question on a New Zealand radio talk show about the very real problem of livestock waste resulted in a serious study. So urine contains nitrogen, and when that's mixed with feces, it becomes ammonia, which is an environmental issue with acid rain and other problems, uh, runoff into rivers and groundwater and all that. It can taint the water with nitrates and create airborne pollutants of nitrous oxide. A single cow can produce about eight gallons of urine a day. Um, and nitrous oxide comprises 7% of the greenhouse gases. Um, at a lab in Dumasdorf, Germany, the researchers mimicked a toddler's training, putting the cows in a special pen, waiting until they urinated and then giving them a reward, with, uh, which was molasses. Cows have a sweet tooth. If the cows urinated outside the mulu, <laughs> they yep. got a squirt of cold water. So just like you do to cats, you spray them with a little bit of cold water. In the two experiments, researchers let Holstein cows roam about the indoor facility when they had to urinate. 11 of them pushed into the pen, did their business, and got a reward. Um, there were a couple caveats. Number one, they gave <laughs> they gave diuretics to the cattle <laughs> to get them to urinate more because they had limited time. Uh, and that was only for urinating and not for uh, defecating. But there's no reason to say that they couldn't be taught to do that uh, as well. So the biggest livestock uh, problem with li or problem with livestock is the heat trapping gas methane that they emit uh, emit in belches and flatulence. Um, they can't be trained not to belt or belch or fart. Matthew said, "Quote: They would blow up." <laughs> Which reminds me of that video Brian sent of the <laughs> whale exploding. Oh, no, yeah. Yes, of the whale exploding. It was, was awful, disgusting. <laughs> so. That's a great last sentence for an article. Yeah. They would blow up. <laughs> they would blow up, said scientist. <laughs> scientist Matthews. Uh, moving on. Moving uh, on. We, we talked about Dutch Brothers. Let's talk about Duncan, which I guess we no longer say Duncan Donuts. I guess maybe that's like a KFC mm -hmm. thing where they're going to switch it every, New brand every few years. Yep. Yeah. Uh, All right. Yeah. Duncan opens first digital only restaurant in Boston. Uh, the location only takes digital orders placed in advance via the Duncan mobile app or at an in-store kiosk and makes them available for contactless pickup in a designated area. Duncan claims that placing orders without employee interaction will create an efficient, more convenient and frictionless experience for customers on the go. There is no dining room at the store. Uh, didn't, we, didn't McDonald's already do this? I don't know that they've done an entire store. I mean, you can, 
uh, order stuff over the app and, and have it picked up on the go. But this one apparently only takes digital orders. Kind of like how you, when you get a haircut now, you have to get the stupid app and then sign up. Like I've gone in so Where many do you times go? <laughs> to wherever's cheapest, <laughs> the super cuts are <laughs> no great clips I go to. And so like, they're like, did you sign in? And I'm like, well, no, I don't have the app. And they're like, well, you know, you can just get the app. I'm like, I'm standing right here. Can't I just sign in right here? And like, they make, it's just so ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> that reminds me of the story. My aunt and uncle said they went to a restaurant recently and the, the menu was only available by scanning a QR code and yeah. they got so mad. They walked it. They walked out. <laughs> that's happening. That's happening a lot. We we went to a place like that on Friday. Uh, same deal. And it, it's really um, making the class rift be like a person who does not have a smartphone can't engage in these activities and and i thought that there was a recent lawsuit about that uh in portland because there was a cashless restaurant and like well homeless people in in portland couldn't purchase they they literally were unable to you know they were restricted from being able to access the services because of classism and yeah. uh, it's it's an interesting dilemma because I understand the the benefits are astronomical uh, for the restaurant and for the patrons, but it leaves a a certain segment unable to access these services. And uh, totally, there needs to be there needs to be like a caveat. Uh, right. Uh, well, and as for <clears throat> curmudgeonly as I am about apps, that is kind of part of the reason is because I've always just had this stupid thing about class classism and, and all that divide. And so like now at church too, um, we use, we uh, print out tag, uh, teacher tags. So everybody knows that you've been background checked and all that. And it used to be, we just had a lanyard and now they do it every service and it says the specific date and time or whatever. So everybody could keep track. And they were like, just, you know, just download the church app to do this and scan the QR code. And I went to the lady that's kind of in charge and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> and they're like, well, you know, we can teach you how I'm like, it's no, no. And so I was like, I, will volunteer my time for two hours every week. I'm fine with that. My oh, The only thing I will ever ask you to do is you will be printing out my tag for me. <laughs> She's like, all right. So yeah, this morning somebody <laughs> brushed in and like, gave me my tag. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> is this just because you don't want to have to download an app? Yes. <laughs> yes. A little bit, yeah. It's that. part of that, but it is that, I mean, and it's, it's totally unreasonable on my part and I get that, but it is that whole, like, I don't want to be made any more, like I inevitably I will be a complete slave to my phone and everything because that's just how the world is going to work, but I am going to be drugged there kicking and screaming because like, I don't want you to have control. Like I, it's, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but it's just one of those, one of those hills I choose to die on because it's relatively safe and nobody gets really hurt. <laughs> My current technological hill that I am dying on is uh, the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint. I was a Sprint customer oh. and now they're switching over everything to T-Mobile and uh, they're, they're going to shut down the Sprint towers. And so you have to get a new SIM card so you can only use the T-Mobile network. And I've heard such horror stories about people who loved their Sprint service and now their T-Mobile service 
service sucks. And like, I get emails, phone calls. They're like, would you like a free SIM card? We can mail it to you. And I'm like, no, no, I'm, you know, (laughs) I want my voice stream. I will be here until you physically remove those towers. (laughs) chain yourself to them like (laughs) like people chain themselves (laughs) to a tree redwoods (laughs) save the sprint towers can we get greenpeace involved (laughs) you'll be without a paddle three where it's the (laughs) unipiper who builds a a tree house in one of the (laughs) t-mobile towers (laughs) to to save the sprint tower on top of mount hood (laughs) it is funny though like because we're all just so powerless to do anything, mm-hmm. to change anything. So like, we all just need those things to be like, I am gonna control this thing. Yes. And like, that's what it's gonna be. I don't care what it is, but that's gonna be the thing that I exert my stupid amount of control. So I don't feel feel like I'm being swallowed. Anyway, well, speaking of being controlled, Ryan. Yes, uh, also a food-related story, but uh, going in a different technological direction. Man claims Disney brainwashes guests into buying food at theme parks, Uh, colon, not being dramatic. (laughs) I don't know if that's the man talking or the the writer of the article. That's like when you you're in a play and they have like the the kind of the parenthetical asides of like, angry or like not meaning it or whatever yeah. it is, not being dramatic <laughs> they forgot to remove that um a theory that disneyland brainwashes guests into buying food went viral on tiktok he claimed smellitizers uh make the park smell like delicious food and there's some truth to the claim yes I, i've heard this before um have you ever walked by a building with a bunch of speakers on it but no sound is coming out those speakers act in at certain aromas throughout the park Candy shops, ice cream shops, popcorn stands, and rides all use smellitizers. Uh, in a 2017 interview, former employee said they use smellitizers to provide a complete experience. Um, like, I, I get it. Like, it, it, absolutely, uh, smell is an important sense, and, you know, it helps uh, create memories. And I think this article is silly because, yeah, it happens, and it's not brainwashing. It's just part of the experience. Right. And it's says, used, it's used in almost every food industry. You know, Cinnabon does it, and, every, right. you know, everybody. I do it in my house with my butt rum mocha wax melts that mm-hmm. just smell like the inside of a caramel corn machine and it's yeah you step in and it's just you that smell and i i actually i didn't do this purposely but if if any of the kids that i've worked with um get the little um the little tree you know the smelling trees for your car to make them smell good or whatever if they mix the vanilla rama and the new car scent together that exact smell they're gonna be like oh my gosh this smells like todd's car because it's just (laughs) always that one smell and Uh smell is linked to that memory so i occasionally walk into a place and i'll be like wow because i worked at my first job was at a radio shack and like there's just that radio shack smell that is so ingrained i was in a stair i was house sitting and uh, it's, it was, it's kind of an older house and in this stairwell, like halfway through the stairwell is just like this very specific, um, kind of raw wood smell. And I was walking down and I was like, oh my gosh, it's my, it's the stairs to my grandparents' basement. Just <laughs> that exact smell yeah. in there too, That's which cool. is why, go ahead. I- 
Oh, <laughs> I look forward to the day where we can have like uh, our phones can capture smell and analyze it, and then later you can like oh, yeah. recreate it. Um, that would be really cool. That like take, like taking a photo, but it's like taking a, a smell. Smell vision. Smell is smell and taste are so hard to like sh- describe and share with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, this article is dumb because it is literally <laughs> man on TikTok is angry and that's it and yeah and correct captain obvious yeah (laughs) good job (laughs) well uh in in uh other news amazon's palm reader launches at the first non-amazon venue in sneak peek of our biometric based future so instead of fingerprints they're using uh whole palm scans and so uh just like your card reader at the exit of a uh, at, at the cashier, now you are able to hover your palm over their reader, which is a little camera that looks at your palm and uh, knows who you are uh, and is able to uh, you know pull up your ticket. So it's now being used at Red Rocks Amphitheater in uh, Denver, Colorado. <laughs> and so um, Amazon One is already being used at Amazon's brick and mortar stores, as well as several Whole Foods where people who sign up for Amazon One provide a scan of their palm print, and once registered, those palm prints can be used to purchase items. At Red Rock, the service, which will allow entry to the concert venue with a swipe of their hand, uh, when a ticket holder is ready to enter the amphitheater using their palm, there's a designated entry line where Amazon One is enabled. When a fan hovers their palm over the Amazon One device, a unique palm signature is built by our computer vision technology amazon explained in a press release early tuesday so amazon promises the technology is secure and doesn't store any uh, information locally a claim yeah. gizmodo has not been able to independently <laughs> verify so but why well i didn't bring my wallet well i know now i like i get the i get the I get that why, but like, I, yes, no, I, I get you. I, it's, it's the biometrics part of it. It's like, you know, and I was going to say, this is, I'm going to maybe, maybe my future is suing Amazon because pretty soon I'm not going to be able to put my palm down on anything because my Dutch hand disease is going (laughs) to curl me into oblivion. Yeah. And, that's going to be in violation of the ADA. I'm going to try to put this down on something. What's going on? <laughs> it does. It does raise questions of like, uh, like, well, if I take a print of your hand, uh, you know, we're we're at the fair and uh, they have the wax dipped hand candle thing, right? <laughs> and so that's just now a fodder for stealing identities. That's is. <laughs> The, oh, the, 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 the wax, black, yeah, the, the black the, mirror version of this is uh, people start cutting off other people's hands and selling them around. on the black market. Totally. And then not only uh, that's like uh, identity theft, because uh, not only can you buy stuff as that person now, but that person no longer has their identity. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what Whole Foods <sighs> wants. But yeah, I mean, I don't, and I get, I get why again, but it's like, it, it, it's, but should it's we? just, 
Well, it's just normalizing. I need to give my biometrics to Amazon.com in order to go see a concert. Like, and that that should be a sentence that is alarming to me and to others. Uh, anyway, well, let's end up on a, on a happier note where a score, this is from the sun, by the way. So take this at base, <laughs> take this with however many grains of salt you do when you read the sun, uh, sc- uh scorned wife raised ex-husband's cryogenics lab, stealing frozen brains of people who hope to be brought back to life. Valerina Uda, Uda Lava, who is 59, uh, and staff from her company grabbed the remains of people who paid thousands of pounds hoping they could be resurrected. Some of the corpses were from Britain and the U.S. and were stored in Val- uh, Valeria's ex-husband's uh, lab in Moscow. So the lab is Russia's leading cryo storage facility. They drained liquid nitrogen from the di- giant Dewar flasks containing frozen bodies and grabbed these and some detached human brains and then loaded them onto trucks. Um, let's see, they, oh, so it sounds like they're, they're ex, ex-husband and wife and, and they started rival companies and there's a, uh, trying to claim who owned the corpses of, of their last company. So, uh, the human remains quote began to heat up. Uh, and so among the frozen brains, uh, in the Moscow store is Dr. Yuri Pichigan, who died in 2018 after inventing the chemical cocktail, which preserves people for t- posterity, posterity, posterity in a deep freeze at minus 196. Uh, a brain, quote, woken in the decades or centuries to come could be implanted in another human body, it is claimed. So that is quite the revenge tactic just to drain the liquid nitrogen out of the corpse barrels that are fermenting oh, in the back of your laboratory yeah, yeah. <sighs> that picture just looks like they're making beer it does yeah there's a couple other pictures of like they loaded it onto the back of the truck and it looks very it, it's a very russian calamity to have <laughs> to have your corpses stolen by your ex-wife so well uh hot off the press uh the latest update in the gabby petito case is uh the fbi will be giving a press conference at grand teton national park in 20 minutes wow we will have to check back i all the days not to to be doing this remotely and not have my stream deck with our breaking news teletype (laughs) so we will check in at the end of our show too to see if there is any update um but for this episode, it's been a while since we've done a, a war of Wikipedia or a wiki war or whatever whatever I uh, call these things. Um, and they're always so fun. So I thought it'd be good to do another one. Now, this time I couldn't really categorize mine as as neatly as, as last time. So we're just going to go in kind of blind and and um, see see what we can do. So the, the quote unquote rules for this is uh, both Brian, there will be five, five different entries that each of us will have. We'll go head to head um, one at a time. And Brian, you will pick the story uh, best of the worst style that for whatever reason you find most compelling or entertaining or, or however, however you're judging it. So, so kind of like Cards Against Humanity. I was going to say yeah, Cards Against Humanity and Apples to Apples, which is yeah. ironic because I hate Apples to Apples because there is no... There is no concrete answer even when I'm right. It's subjective. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I will kick us off here. 
and I will go with a song called As Slow As Possible. Uh, as Slow As Possible is a song composed by avant-garde artist, uh, avant-garde artist John Cage. Uh, people might know the name John Cage because he also composed uh, the kind of quasi-famous Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which mm. is a completely silent composition. So he composed as slow as possible in the mid-1980s, and it is a song that is played, well, as slow as possible. A full performance of the song in motion now will take 639 years to complete. <laughs> it has now been playing on a specially built organ at St. Bouchardi Church in Halsberstadt, Germany, since 2001, when it began with a pause left lasting for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> that was while they were actually building it and putting it together. That's, that's amazing. Now, every, every time it's time for a new note, uh, music lovers mm. congregate in the church to witness the adding of new pipes. It is played on a specialized organ. Uh, See, they the are building it. Yeah, they a specialized organ. They, uh, so for the first time, it was changed in seven years. Uh, the performance is scheduled to end in the year 2640, although the composer, <laughs> <laughs> the composer never actually marked it down to be as long. So the actual piece consists of eight pages of music uh, to, play, to be played slowly, and that's what the composer wrote. He didn't give it a suggested tempo. There have been other performances of the song ranging from a 14 hour and 56 minute performance by Diana Luchis, which is the longest documented performance by a single musician so far, uh, as well as a 12 hour performance in 2015. Um, so blah, blah, blah. So the house, Halberstadt performance started on September 5, 2001, with the rest lasting a year and a half when the first chord was played. Sandbags depressed the organ's pedals to keep them and maintain the notes. Two more organ pipes were added alongside the four already installed, and the tone became more complex, um, blah, blah, blah. There's a constant supply of air through the bellows. On July 5, 2012, two more organ pipes were taken out and two were put in, blah, blah, blah. The note, the note changed on September 5, 2020. And so, yes, again, that will performance is scheduled to end on September 5, 2640. <laughs> so I would play it for you, but you can find a few performances of the <laughs> ongoing and it is just an organ droning one note. For... Do they have a live stream where you can listen in? They do. Uh, yes, you can uh, search for John Cage as slow as possible. Um, and they have a couple different videos, but I believe awesome. there is a live stream that you can that's, follow. So that's awesome. John Cage's as slow as possible. That is pretty good, Todd. That's, um, that's solid, Todd. Um, <clears throat> but Todd, what would you call a number of connected items or names written or printed consecutively, typically one below another? What would you call that? Uh, a list. Cool. What would you call a sequence of these lists grouped together? Ooh, an order? Uh, probably a list of lists. Okay. <laughs> so what would you call an article that has all of these organized together on one page? Uh, a, a listicle of lists lists? A list of lists of lists. And so this is a list of lists of lists, an article in a list of articles that are in themselves, list of articles that are also lists in the English Wikipedia. In other words, each of these articles linked here is an index to multiple lists on a topic. Some of these linked articles also may contain lists of lists as well. So... <clears throat> 
Uh, is this an actual entry to Wikipedia? Like it's its own entry, it, it lists of lists of lists, and then it tells it what that is? Exactly. Yes. Uh, the, the page is titled list of lists of lists. <laughs> it and, has a big picture of exhibit. <laughs> and, and so it does contain, it is a list of lists of lists. Uh, so there's uh, lists of characters in a fictional work, for example, which contain okay. lists of uh, uh, Coronation Street characters, of CSI characters, of DC comic characters, all those. Uh, we also have lists of fictional future timelines. We have lists of uh, acapella groups. We have uh, just a lot of lists of lists of It's lists. interesting that linguistically, linguistically, we don't nest those were, you know, like order phylum, you know, that sort of thing to denote. It's just add another list. <laughs> Got another list for you boys. Exactly. Put it on the list. <laughs> That's so funny. Wow. This All might right. be the most difficult uh, decision I've ever had to make on this show. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Both of those are fantastic. And I had, I was not familiar with either one. Um, I think I'm going to have to give it to Todd because I was familiar with the uh, composer and it was taking something that I was already aware of and taking it <laughs> one step further. Nice. Yeah, it was it was funny when I picked that. I didn't see it was John Cage until after I started reading it. I was like, oh, of course, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. Cool. I did. I did. Okay. I did want to follow up on that other on John Cage one, which is four minutes and 30, uh, 33 seconds. So it's it's precisely that of silence where the piano, I've, I've seen it performed, where a guy just sits quietly at a piano and um, it's in it's in three movements. And it's a ch it's a chance for uh, it's a chance to listen to all the sounds that are constantly around us that we ever never actually hear because he noticed we are rarely in silence. So that was his avant-garde statement. That's so. awesome. That's really awesome. Cool. All right, and, and I you... believe uh, as a footnote to that, I believe someone tried uh, performing it and they didn't have permission, and they tried, uh, you know, copyright striking uh, the performance of that piece. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> oh, that's wow. radical. Cool. All that's right, great. Okay, uh, shall I lead and uh, yeah, you, you respond? Take this next one. So. Yep. Todd, are you familiar with Pope Hormistus? He was Pope from 514 to 523. Did you know that he was the father of Pope Silverius, who was then later Pope from 536 to 537? I didn't know any of this. You would know that if you had read the article titled Lists of Sexually Active Popes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a list of sexually active popes. Catholic priests were not celibate before they became pope, and popes who were legally married while people under holy orders are usually required to be celibate. So some celibates are sexually active before their election as pope, and others were accused of being sexually active during their papacies. And so a num number of them had offspring. So there's uh, several, there, there were seven popes that were previously married. Uh, most of them became widowers and then uh, ascended to the papacy. But, uh, but in the case uh, of Pope Hormistus, 
Uh, he wasn't like he also had offspring and had two children uh, during the papacy. Both of them went into priesthood, uh, and uh, then there was so a, was was uh, it a big controversy at the time, or was it just like a? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> Mark, can you go in there and change the title of the article uh, and replace the word "active" to "transmitted," so we can have "sexually transmitted pope." <laughs> uh okay uh that was that was pretty good ah boy bring it todd when you yeah when you started that i had one of my other things picked because it was a person-based thing and i thought that would good but dear i i think i'm gonna i'm gonna switch it in the at the last minute to go with the the Erfurt latrine disaster. Mm. So in July of 1184, Henry VI, who was king of Germany at the time, uh, held court at Hoftag in Erfurt, Germany. On the morning of July 26, the combined weight of the assembled nobles caused the wooden second story floor of the room to collapse, and most of them fell into the latrine cesspit below where about 60 of them drowned in liquid excrement. Oh, (laughs) 60. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So nobles across the Holy Roman Empire were invited to the meeting, and many arrived uh, on the 25th, just as the assembly began. The wooden floor on which the nobles were sitting broke on the stress. People fell through the first, uh, about 60 people died, including Count Gosmer III of Ziggenhang, Count Friedrich of Abensburg, uh, Bugrave of Frederick of Kirkberg, uh, Heinrich I of Schwarzburg, and um, a couple other. King Henry himself was said to have survived only because he sat in an alcove with a stone floor. So <laughs> that is a quite the party. Wow. Those were, wow, this is the best. Uh, this is starting strong. <laughs> Um, okay, those are both fantastic, and I was not familiar with either one. Um, in my mind, I do have a clear winner for a very particular reason. Um, so we're going to tie things up one-to-one. The point is going to Mark, and I'll tell you why. Um, Todd, that is a fantastic event, and I liked hearing about it, but Mark, uh, your uh, um, list of sexually active pope, the reason that is amazing is only because of Wikipedia. Were it not for Wikipedia, like that would just be a fact in the ether, but because of Wikipedia, we have named it something, and it exists as sexually active pope. Uh, It's it's a quantifiable amount of popes. It's a fact. Yeah, and it should also be a band name, the sexually active popes. <laughs> popes that fuck. <laughs> uh, awesome. All right. Well, we are we are tied up here. Well, I'll lead then on this next one going with my person-based based one, which is uh, a woman named Helen Adelaide, who lived uh, in the early part of the, the 1900s. So this inventor noticed that um, police often had difficulty getting confessions out of criminals and often what they did, um, they would later just retract them anyway. So she filed a patent for an invention called the apparatus for obtaining criminal confessions and photographically recording them. So this was in 1927. So she came up with a concept of instead of just the police asking, you know, interrogating, 
a skeleton with glowing red eyes that looked like death himself questioning the suspect instead of a detective. So the suspect was to sit in a small dark chamber as the examiner sat in a nearby chamber and asked questions through a megaphone. The suspect wouldn't be able to see the questioner. Instead, they'd be facing the skeleton. The eyes of the skeleton would glow red and it would look like the questions were coming from the skeleton's mouth. So she believed that being confronted with such a supernatural character would shake the suspect to their core and, quote, enable an inquisitor operating in conjunction with a recording system to obtain confessionals and graphically record them. So the skeleton skull would have a recording uh, device. So if the suspect were ever tried to change their testimony, so it was basically to get an audio and visual confession out of them that they couldn't recant and that was to scare that out of them using a skeleton with glowing glowing red eyes and speaking through a megaphone um unfortunately the um it was never it was never put into practice although there are some wonderful uh images of the patent which i will probably use <laughs> oh that would be thumbnail, an amazing so. wall hanging uh you know the skeleton yes. uh i'll copy i'll copy that yes. into the the very bottom of our shared document there one of the was it was it ever the, actually built or was it just a, a patent i don't think so i believe it was just a patent <laughs> and basically it is there's like a video a movie camera behind a wall if you're looking at it with a skeleton just like glued to the wall and a mega <laughs> with a guy on the other side speaking through it to the oh. person being interrogated if we have the patent uh mark and if you're having a halloween party this year um <laughs> Oh, we can recreate there we go. This. We can have the skeleton confessional. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the so, Pope, yeah. the Pope will go in there the and say he was sexually active. Oh my goodness! Uh, Full circle. Uh, so, yeah, so I put I put two of those figures uh, in the in the shared chat. Right. So, uh, so Todd, I hate to do this to you, but I am oh, no. going to pull the Holocaust card. So, are you familiar <laughs> with the Ovitz family? I am not. So the Ovitz family. Um, it's, you, it's funny, but it's not, you know, uh, so it's, it's funny that it's not funny. Uh, yes. the Ovitz family was a family of Hungarian Jewish actors and traveling musicians, uh, originating from present Romania who survived imprisonment at the Auschwitz concentration camp during world war II. Most of them were dwarfs. They were the largest family of dwarfs ever recorded and were the largest family to enter Auschwitz and survive intact. The family Whoa. of 12 ranged from 15 months, 15 month old baby to 58 year old woman. And a hundred percent of them survived Auschwitz and, uh, and came out. And the reason was, is, um, uh, Mengele was, uh, observing them and uh, performing experiments on them and and wanted human you know information didn't uh maim them or or anything like that but studied photography you know lots of um <clears throat> presentations of them to groups of people uh, uh, it was just horrific all all the way around but um largest family of dwarfs and uh, wow. the the largest family overall period that entered and exited Auschwitz intact. Wow. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. The Ovitz family. The Ovitz, the Ovitz family of dwarves versus the skeleton confessional. 
That's fascinating. Um, wow. All of these could be their own. Like someone could do a deep dive YouTube video on any one of totally. these. Totally. Um, all right. Well, uh, I, Todd's was funnier. So um, <laughs> it's hard to laugh at the Holocaust unless you're Jerry Lewis. So um, <laughs> Todd got it. Oh, my God. <laughs> nice poll. <laughs> Um, wow. All right, so two two to one, two to one. Maybe that'll be the title of the show. It's hard to laugh at the Holocaust. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to laugh at the Holocaust. Okay. Uh, uh, all right, Mark. Cool. Go ahead. Um, are you familiar with the danger sport that combines the thrill of an extreme outdoor activity with the satisfaction of a well pressed shirt? If not, you should go to Extreme Ironing. Uh, which is a uh, sport. So uh, examples of the presentation. And so what, what you do is extreme ironing, also called EI, is an extreme sport in which people take ironing boards to remote locations and iron items of clothing. According to the Extreme Ironing Bureau, uh, or the EIB, uh, extreme ironing is the is that latest dangerous sport that combines the thrills of uh Outdoor activities with satisfaction of a well-pressed shirt in examples of a uh, mountainside with a difficult climb, a forest in a canoe while skiing or snowboarding on top of a large bronze statue in the middle of a street underwater in the middle of an M1 motor motorway race and while parachuting. Um, there also, one was done under the ice sheet of a frozen lake. So those are some examples of some EI locations. Wow. I have seen uh, uh, pictures of this before. It's, it has a rich history on it. And I just remember there is a guy like, it looks like he's on top of the Himalayas, like with an ironing board and a shirt. And he's just like, whatever. The first recorded one was in 1980. So it, it's been around oh, a little wow. while. Yeah. Oh, it has a rich history. Rich, rich history. <laughs> I, I want it to be an Olympic sport now. That's cool. Yeah, uh, I've heard of that as well. Um, I think I would file that under uh, hashtag uh, human beings are awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there we go. This one uh, matches up a little bit with a little bit more with Mark's last entry. Of the um... oh, we're going back to the Holocaust. <laughs> we are. We're not quite to the Holocaust, but we're in the we're in the Venn diagram. So. I want to talk about square dancing. <laughs> we all do. We okay. all do. So square dancing has kind of a, a history that we weren't kind of aware of because if we, a lot of us might remember like a random <laughs> section of elementary school where like we just all had to learn how to square dance for some reason. It was like, don't we all <laughs> go ahead. I think I might, I, I, <laughs> I might just give give all the points to Mark for that one. <laughs> that was good. So anyway, let um there is a reason for that, and it has to do with Henry Ford, huh? who brought square dancing to America through his influence and millions of dollars. Is so this he, is about the uh, racist history of square dancing? It is. He believed yeah. it was the most wholesome of entertainment. He even required his employees to take part in square dances and tried to get uh, many states made it their official dance. There was even a coordinated campaign to make square dancing the official dance of the whole U.S. And it was all because Ford hated jazz and wanted to eradicate it from American culture. Oh my gosh. He spent 
of fortune promoting square dancing and country music in general. He promote, uh, published a manual in 1926. Um, he opened clubs, newspapers, published full page dancing instructions, colleges started teaching it. Um, and it was all because he thought jazz was an unwholesome influence because it closely identified with Jews and blacks because be Ford was not only racist, as many people on the day were, but he hated Jews to the point of publishing a series of books on, quote, the international Jew. As far as jazz, Ford said, quote, many people have wondered whence come the wave upon waves of music slush that invade decent home and set the young people of this generation imitating the drivel of morons. Popular music is a Jewish monopoly. Jazz is a Jewish creation. The mush slush, the abandoned seriousness of sliding notes, all of Jewish origin. So, uh... <laughs> The Jews made jazz? No, they didn't, okay. which is ironic. Just, just <laughs> I don't believe they did originate jazz. <laughs> I believe that would. Um, but they also, um, he also didn't consider that uh, the <clears throat> square dance call, uh, uh, the square dance is most likely responsible because it is a call and response form of dance uh, that uh, originated in black cultures. Uh, so <laughs> either way. All of that to say, that is why many of us learned to square dance in school, because like every generation, they couldn't handle the music of the youth. <laughs> well, racism is hard to laugh at. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so you're, now you're making now you're making a list of things that are hard to laugh at. So we have racism <laughs> and the Holocaust. So soon we'll have a list of lists about the things that you're keeping lists of. Um, okay, so yeah, point goes to uh, extreme ironing, uh, and I believe ironing. that ties you guys up uh, two to two. Two to two. We are tied. Oh, tiebreaker. Tiebreaker. We are neck and neck. Wow. Well, I'm hoping this one pulls on enough intrigue and nostalgia to put me ahead. So let's take a look at the cool S. Ah. So that might sound confusing, but I think. If you remember, the cool S, also known as the Stussy S, the Super S, the Superman S, the Universal S, the Pointy S, the Graffiti S, many other names, is that very familiar S, geometric S shape that we all doodled on our uh, notes and our folders growing up. The origin of it is completely unknown, but it may have originated from geometry textbook and appeared as early as the 1970s as part of graffiti culture. It has no ties to the uh, U.S. clothing man Stussy, of course, or uh, to Superman, but the origin is completely unknown. The earliest recording we have can be traced back to the 1970s, and it was because somebody was taking a picture of uh, different pictures of uh, Los Angeles, and in one of them, a very faded cool S can be seen graffitied on the pavement. So that was in the 70s, so it could be that was there for since the 60s. Hmm. Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who is a, a very famous artist uh, of the 80s, uh, occasionally uh, hid the symbol in his paintings. Um, Madonna's old boyfriend and famous artist, Jean-Michael Basquiat, uh, Jean Basquiat. Uh, Swedish, YouTube, Swedish YouTuber David Wongstedt studied the topic for five years and attempted to find the origin. And he concluded that the 1890 book, Mechanical Graphics, uh, could most likely be the origin since it is kind of a geometrically arrived at symbol of starting with lines and then connecting those lines. Huh. So... 
the cool S origin still under dispute, but possibly <clears throat> the 1890 textbook mechanical graphics. And, th and that's what the entry is called, cool S? Yes, cool S. Okay. That's that's really cool. I like I like that is wholesome. That is that is a wholesome that's yes. There wholesome we go. and no Holocaust involved. No Holocaust involved. <laughs> so all right. Uh, have you ever he heard of Carol Suchek? So he was a Czech professional stuntman living in Canada who developed a shock absorbent barrel. He died following a demonstration involving the barrel being dropped from the roof of the Houston Astrodome in front of 35,000 people. And oh no. this is one, <laughs> one of many examples of lists of inventors killed by their own inventions page. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> cool ass. Hey, it's cool. <laughs> The, the, S yeah, was, the yeah. S was nice. The S was, that was really cool. That was neat. But uh, uh, yeah, we have examples. Is the Segway guy on there? The, uh, I'm sure oh, yeah. he is. Oh, there is no reference to Segway on the page. Oh, and he wasn't wow. the inventor of the Segway, though. He was just the president of the. Oh, uh, so, no. Yeah. So uh, these are people who actually invented something that then caused their demise. So. Uh, Otto Lilenthal died the day after crashing one of his hang gliders. He was the inventor of the hang glider. <laughs> um, and I, I like how like he, he died the day after, but someone was like, you know what? <laughs> this is pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been worse. I think I'll pick up this mantle. Fred Duesenberg was killed in a high-speed road accident in a Duesenberg automobile. Uh and uh, Francis Edgar Stanley was killed while driving a Stanley Steamer automobile. He drove his car into a woodpile while attempting to avoid farm wagons traveling side by side <laughs> on the road. So, do you uh, was the Stanley Steamer apparent? I, I start as a car or start as a vacuum cleaner and then turned into a that, car. It's a great question for an entirely different podcast. <laughs> that sounds like, podcast. That sounds like something I should not look up on Urban Dictionary. <laughs> the Stanley Steamer Motor Carriage Company was an American manufacturer of steam cars. It operated oh, from 1902 okay. to 1924, and the cars made by the company were colloquially called <laughs> uh, uh, Stanley Steamers, although several different models were produced. Oh, interesting, because now it's Stanley Steamer Carpet Cleaner. Yes. So I wonder if somebody just bought the name? That's crazy. Uh, the entire Steamer? <laughs> I barely knew her. Um, oh, quick on the draw. Look at that. Um, <laughs> In the 1940, so that song entitled "Stanley Steamer" appears in the 1948 Summer Holiday, starring Mickey Rooney and Glenn. Uh, Bugs Bunny mentions a Stanley Steamer. Wow! Um, I it doesn't. This is its own entry in itself. It it is for the American Carpet Cleaning Company. See this other article. So oh, Stanley oh. Motor Carriage Company is different from the Stanley Steamer Company. Okay, interesting. Huh. So he did. He he did. He did. <laughs> so anyone anyone else on your list? Uh, I mean, it's it's, oh, it's a very whole long. entry. <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a whole page of. Um, so there's 
there's also a, a subsection called popular legends and related stories. So these are people that they think probably so like perilous of, of Athens, great name. Uh, <laughs> according to legend was the first to be roasted in a Brazilian, a brazen bowl that he invented. Uh, and so things, things like that. So those are not proof or documented they're more right. legends uh but he was he, he was the first to be roasted by his friends saying mean <laughs> things about him exactly uh but there's sections on uh, rocketry railway publicity and entertainment which is the oh, wow. sue check one um uh medical maritime industrial chemistry aviation automotive and art that is a list of lists. Yes. Wow, it all it is full circle moment. <laughs> so art so Luis Jimenez, uh, he died in two thousand six, was killed while creating the famous Colorado statue of a blue horse, the blue Mustang, with a section of it fell on him and severed an artery in his leg. Yikes. Mm. Wow. What a what a what a noble victory. I don't know. That was <laughs> That was, was well done. That was that was when there uh, people in a race are neck and neck, and then like that last leg, like Usain Bolt kicks in, and you, I, I don't think I won yet. Like, that was our last. That was the last entry I had. That was all five of them. Yeah. Did Brian? Oh. Did Brian call it? Oh no, I did I'm not call assuming. it. Uh, but yeah, oh, we okay. can uh, assume correctly that the it is going yes. to mark. <laughs> nice. Yay! Well done. Well played. Well that was a uh, really was good solid. round. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Brian. It was great to have you back on. Uh, is there anything, anything coming up for the Unipiper? Uh, I'm, I'm taking a little time off, um, but I just uh, let's let's check in uh, on the Gabby Petito situation. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> end, end on and up. Ago. So, yeah, confirmed that a body was found. Uh, it looks like that press conference that was started uh, or scheduled for 10 minutes ago has not started yet. Uh, and they they have not confirmed whether it was Gabby. So I assume that's what we will find out as soon as this uh, press conference starts. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for that update from live from the newsroom. That's, yep. This is breaking as it gets. <laughs> How exciting. Uh, Mark, anything you want to you want to add in before we take off here? Um, <clears throat> um, Mike Bennett has his art yes. uh, installation. Uh, the crypto zoo uh installation opening tomorrow for about a month so month of october uh go and visit it's free yes for sure visit mike bennett art uh on all the social media b-e-n-n-e-t-t mike bennett art and check out his his stuff because it is just fantastic so free family friendly and free uh for a whole month so make sure to check that out um, i guess i will there's no other choice than uh leaving leaving us with John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds. So (laughs) we will talk to, listen to Fun Employment Radio. They're every, uh, on every day doing shows and they are fantastic. So go listen to them and support them. They've got some new merch up. So check that out. Um, And that is it. We will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. And now a performance of John Cage's 433. Please welcome our soloist, William Marks.